We are back for another Codex Cantina episode, which is just two guys talking literature, trying to make sense of it. Now, we spend a lot of time pushing ourselves, trying to understand this literature, organizing it, and then bringing it to a conversational approach for how we deliver it. And we've absolutely put more money in it than we've gotten out of it. So if you guys are considering supporting this channel, we'd appreciate you checking out our Patreon link at patreon.com slash the Codex Cantina, as well as Ko-Fi of ko-fi.com slash the Codex Cantina. It all helps us in running the show, along with commercials, guys. So thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. Four, four three, three, two, two one, one, ka. Go. Oh, I knew you were going to say Ka, and I was going to say it, no, too. No, you didn't. If you uh, knew, you would have said it. <laughs> uh, I, I was like, oh, he's going to say Ka. He's going to say Ka. Holy cow. We made it. Over three years in the making. <laughs> Even longer. If you take, if you go back to when I was in my 20s, and I started this series and only made it to, to Wizard and Glass, this has been a, the longest book journey I've ever had in my life. I was still in Florida. And then I was two houses ago, so that would have been at least four years ago, maybe five years ago. When we, we talked about Gunslinger for like five hours one day. And then we just like took off like the past year from Saga of Susanna. Susanna just drained us like it was pretty, it took a lot out of us emotionally. <laughs> uh, I got to be honest, I was not enthusiastic to pick up the book after Song of Susanna. Uh, we were reading it with other people as well, and I got a little ways into it. And life was crazy. Uh, you know, I, I quit my career of teaching. I moved. There was a lot going on, right? And I was able to re I was listen. I listened to it on Audible at my own pace. And with my new job, I was able to listen to it in like one week. So I got it like all smushed together. And I think that was a benefit this time because I was able to be excited every time I went back to, to listen to it and, and pick up where I left off. So we're real people. And in the same regard, it's, I actually finished this four months ago and it just took crypto that long to kind of catch up. Correct me as we go through this if I can't remember things correctly. But man, I'm just really excited to talk about this. I've had to keep this bottled up for four months now. Thank goodness. <laughs> Has it been four months? You finished it in May? Man, I'm sorry, so. my friend. Wow. I think so. I think so. But what to expect today? Let's go through this because we need to talk about this whole red pill, blue pill thing. Like that seemed kind of like a, a thing for this. Uh, we got to talk about Journey Before Destination. A little Brandon Sanderson making... <laughs> making its debut here and um i think i think this ending right it, it's controversial it, it, people are gonna want did you like it did you hate it like you know like there's people on all sides of the corn but but what does it mean right like what does this mean to us what does it mean to this book and it's just it's such a dash of stephen king with a full helping of just like i told you so <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think at one point you did point out what you thought the ending would be when you rattled off four or five things it it could happen at the end years no, ago. No, 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 I'm, I'm talking no. about Stephen King's I Told You So. Because he's just oh. like, yeah, you're not going to like this ending. Like, you might not want to, like, as if anyone would just stop before the ending. So, with that said, okay. spoilers, spoilers ahead. Like, assume you've read this whole book. We're going to be contextualizing the ending of this book through this discussion and then we're going to step through it as kind of the goal for today and you read the whole thing you didn't stop like you were supposed to <laughs> oh heck no who stops seriously <laughs> when you're like so close to the end <laughs> i don't know maybe some people uh, hey there's been tv shows before where i watched the final episode and i thought 
if I'd stopped one episode before, I would be happier right now. I'll say that. I'll, I'll agree with that. I'll agree with that. And let's also cheers to all of the uh, Tower Junkies out here with us. Honestly, this is this is not pandering. You guys have been like the nicest group on YouTube. Like the internet can be full of some people who are pretty angry for reasons I don't understand. Never received a really mean comment on any of our Stephen King videos. So cheers to all of you guys out there who are just looking to have a good time and listen to two friends babble about their experience through this. Well, thank you for your patience of, you know, us having to finish it and uh, wanting to actually know our thoughts on this story. So thank you. So fractured a description for my mind and the characters at the beginning of this story because we start off he, he kind of pulls uh the wasteland you know how like it's the end of the wasteland but it's kind of the beginning of wizard and glass like that there's there's no stopping there right i kind of felt similar between song of Susanna and here but i'm but i honestly am glad i needed a break after song of Susanna. but we we pick it up right jake callahan and oi we're heading into the Dixie Pig, and it is guns blazing from the start for this story. Oh, I think that either his editor, himself, somebody was like, we, we've got to pick it up. Uh, you know, you can't do an eighth book. You've got to finish this story. And it finally just kind of starts, it, the, the path narrows, so to speak. The beam pushes them in the right direction. And I feel like it's, it's King's writing at its best when, you know, things are moving quickly and it's just not so, you know, descriptive. And he finally gets all the characters back together. So you're not having all these different, you know, plays going on. It's just you getting everybody together, the bands back together, and we're going to move forward and we're going to conquer this thing. And I, I love how uh, quickly it, it, it overcomes that slog of that was Song of Susanna. Yeah. So Callahan comes in like we're, we're doing guns blazing or or plates blazing, however you want to describe it with Ariza. <laughs> They're on the horizons. <laughs> and, and then Callahan's like walking around with the skull powder, like the 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 turtle, like hypnotizing the low level vampires and stuff. Like I, I'd had like the turtles in time, dun, 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 like just playing in my head as he's like walking around with this turtle. <laughs> yeah. You knew he was going to die, though, right? I mean, oh, he had low survivability face left and right. That that dude was I can't believe he made it out of wolves. That far? Honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I felt like I felt like he went out on his own terms, though, which is pretty awesome. So he distracts all the vampires so Jake can make it further into the restaurant. And uh, through what we learn later in the story that Roland basically like, you know, jumps into his brain and forces Jake to run. And he tells Callahan, like, you did it, man. You, you did what you're supposed to. This was your fate. This was your call. This was your destiny. And uh, he, he takes his own life so that he can't be turned into a vampire. And I thought that was a, a pretty poetic ending. I, I, his is one of the only deaths that I thought was, was good, that was well-written, because I'm still mad over Eddie. Well, we'll get there. Is, did he really choose his own ending? I mean, if, if you know, jumping ahead to, to Roland, who you know, like we talked about kind of enters his mind of some sort. Is it really his choice to die? If Roland was kind of controlling him in a sense, like there's, there's an element of, of will and how Roland's obsession through the whole series, you know, this tower junkie thing, he's a tower junkie and how he basically forces everybody to do these things, to sacrifice themselves for his goal. What is Callahan's responsibility in this and how he was, kind of manipulated, kind of forced into sacrificing himself from a certain point of view. For sure. I could see that view. I also think that Callahan is 
one that is looking for redemption and he's looking for that sacrifice for the mistakes he made in his life. And Roland is saying, you, you've done it. You, you are, you're good, man. Like you, you, you did what you were supposed to. And now you can move on to the next, the next afterlife or whatever. Uh, and I think he's him giving him permission. And that's all Callahan really needed, especially from somebody like Roland, who he looked up to and admired. Well, and he also got to be the martyr, right? Like that's yeah, kind exactly. of a big deal. He he kind of kind of in the same way that Jesus died for others from a biblical standpoint. So does Callahan get to reenact that? You know what I mean? Like he, he gets to look up to the big JC and kind of relive like that where he's he's dying for a bigger cause. He's dying for something bigger than himself. He gets his faith back, right? He was a priest and he lost his faith and now it's renewed. And through this self-sacrifice, he obtains that. Now, elsewhere, uh, I say elsewhere, else time, like we're across decades that like, how do you, how do you describe like, well, t- two decades later, like, <laughs> but um, we kind of talked about, you know, we have Eddie and, and, and Roland and they do that thing, but, but there's this breakdown of universes and minds of, of also we hear the same words being described with uh, Susanna and Mia, who's going into labor and having her her first boner fied baby. Yes, I did that pun on purpose. That <laughs> <laughs> that well, I mean, baby comes out fully excited to be in the world. I get it. I get it. Right, but then he starts to eat his Mia. mother. To yeah, taking the mother complex to a whole nother level, and that's when I think Susanna grabs a gun and shoots one of his legs off. Right. Yeah, and it is not pretty, man. It is a very grotesque scene. The way that it describes uh him eating the the mia and then you know yeah Susanna grabbing the gun shooting off one of his late legs because he's a human baby but then after he eats mia he turns into his demonic crimson daddy his spider form which just sounds terrifying oh the were spider yeah that is awful yeah. do you ever think that they're kind of connected at all the way that Roland early on lost his fingers did a chick and Them when chum. Yeah, and then now when Mordred's born, he gets like one of his you know eight legs blown off. Like they're kind of connected because they're they're supposed to be opposed. Like they're they're the arch nemesis of, of each other. We kind of learn, and they both kind of suffer like the the fate of losing an appendage in a sense. I don't not not totally, but there's just like a weird connection there. I kind of thought about. No, I mean, and if you think about, let's, I mean, we're going spoilers, so, and I know it's a little bit out of order, but think about the connection he has to his other father, because he has two fathers, Roland Mm -hmm. and the Crimson King. What happens to Mordred? He gets burned away, right? What happens Mm -hmm. to the Crimson King? He gets erased away. So, like, the deaths of them are the same kind of as well. So, yeah, there's a whole connection between those three. I I can see it. Yeah, and we're going to have to get into that, because remind me about that that part, because when we get to the Eddie part, there's something that we need to kind of talk about. But um, <laughs> okay. mind the mind gap, right? Kind of, uh, to me, that was like a subtle reference to mind the gap, the London uh, underground saying, like like it's a very famous saying. But uh, he enters into this, whew, the mind gap, a trap set by the old ones, I think it was, something along those lines. Again, four months, give me a break. But uh, uh they they go through this and Jake, I guess, had this TV show that he watched a movie when he was younger of these like dinosaurs, the dinosaurs. Like, yeah. Yeah. They're like materialized, come real to attack. And uh, it was it was very interesting, a little 
a little long. You mentioned that Stephen Stephen King's editors, I don't I don't know where they were at this part. <laughs> just to be harsh a little bit, I'm just saying. But um how did you feel about the way they got out is they just they they swapped places. Like instead of white swap, we got bumbler swap. <laughs> just swap yeah, spaces that with was... me. We'll get out of the mind trap. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of like this. I mean, it's old school. I feel like it's reminiscent of Star Trek or any kind of like show or or movie where like you're going down a hallway and suddenly there is a trap. Like, why does this exist here? Why is this here? It's just kind of funny. Like, and obviously it's trying to protect the door. uh, But I thought it was kind of a cool little thing where we finally get Oi's perspective. And that was kind of neat because he's like, man, I have to be Jake and his hands are weird and his nose sucks and his eyes are terrible and I can't walk on two. And he's had like, Oi is in Jake's body trying to walk and he's having a really hard time because he used to work at walking on all fours. And I thought that was kind of cool that we finally, after all of this time, get to uh, uh, have a little bit more Oi action because, you know, he's a great character that I think is underutilized until the very, very end. Uh, and it might be a little bit long, but again, I was listening to it and I was kind of enraptured in that that scene because, you know, the guys are chasing Jake and he's throwing a rise of plates, chopping off vampires' heads and everything. Like, I feel like if this was movie form, it would be a lot more intense and exciting. This was like the longest, awesome open action sequence ever. It was just nonstop because... Even when you look coming out of this, right, we, we jump over like, OK, yes, there's the scenes where uh, Jake and Eddie now in, in, in the final parts of part one are convincing the uh, column like, hey, you, you got to go start this tech corporation thing. Like, it's kind of really important to save the universe. Can you just do it? Right. <laughs> but when they meet up again, like when they when they had um, what was the guy that was chasing him? Flaherty that was chasing uh, Jake at the end and then. Roland and Eddie show up and they're just like looking around like old Western spaghetti style. And then before they even have the chance to raise their guns, wipe them all down. Yeah. You're not dealing with two people with guns. You're dealing with gunslingers, buddy. Yeah. Like this is, this is why you read it. It's a throwback to toll even. Right. Oh, yeah. And this is like this is Eddie at his top peak form. He's not a druggie anymore. He's honed his skills. He's arguably faster than Roland at this point in time. And it just, you know, you love to see this. The team up like they're finally almost all back together. And he's so close to getting back to Susanna after, you know, she's actually Susanna and she's whole again. Uh, It's uh, it's the the end of the season on ending on a good high. Like this is where I feel like Song of Susanna should have ended. And it would have been a killer book if it would have ended right here and then picked up mm-hmm. later. Mm-hmm. I don't know, in my opinion. Yeah. So, Susanna, all right, we, we, we meet up. We're finally reunited. The Cotet are together again in Fedic. And there's a little bit of, I think, kind of like throwback exposition that kind of helped build the world. I wonder how much more of this I would... Um, understand i guess like i understood it enough to get through it like there's no there's no point where i'm like i don't understand this at all but i would love to have had more information on some of the breaker elements which i guess the hearts in atlantis book better brings in i still enjoyed it like a hundred percent but i want more and i guess have you read that book no and it's funny because he makes fun of that book in this book and he's like yeah i went off and i wrote you know 
this book because I couldn't listen anymore. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I wasn't brave enough. And Roland like, you know, smacks him one and says, you're going to finish my story. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so yeah. meta. It's so good. Uh, but I have not read that book, but I think it fills in a lot of the gaps of understanding, you know, the breakers and their, their superpowers and, you know, how it all works and them basically getting like brain juice to, you know, juice their powers up and stuff. And uh, I feel like King was pulling from a lot of different elements uh, of when he was writing this, of different sci-fi that he enjoyed. I feel like this book, especially at this point, when he's starting to fill in some of the information of being kind of lost through, you know, the first two, three, four books, is he's writing this for the fans. Uh, and I think that's very, very obvious here, where he's giving you over-explanation, which he never does in his books, but he knows that he that he owed it to the fans that had been waiting so many decades for this conclusion. Yeah. I mean, they do go into more detail here about the the runes and how they fed the psychic energy for the breakers and such. And uh, well, they did go to a lot of background because, you know, the Katet, they meet up with uh, Ted, what is it, Ted Brodigan? Um, the other Katet. <laughs> Yeah, the other Kata, yeah. Dinky and uh, Shimi. Shimi. Good old Shimi. We remember Shimi. Who doesn't love a good Shimi? <laughs> oh, man. This guy also gets the bad end of the deal. His death pisses me off, too. Ugh, yeah. Like, all the good characters get the shitty deaths. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I'm very passionate. <laughs> <laughs> well, here, here, here's the thing, is... We, we go to the cave, and the caves are symbolic, usually a lot of time, of finding yourselves, Right? But we go to these tapes of the TED tapes, <laughs> the TED tapes and the TED tapes, man, we get a lot of background on TED. Do you think, I mean, it's kind of hard for us to estimate since neither one of us read Hearts in Atlantis. Do you think that part meant something totally different for fans that have read it? And what did, what did that backstory mean to you? And was, talk to me about the necessity of when is a long backstory necessary for a character. This is how you felt about the, the mind trap. This is how I felt about this. Uh, I'll be honest. This is about the only part of the book that I didn't enjoy. Uh, this and uh, the bad guy, the mayor of Happyville, small Pleasantville. Oh, I can't remember. We get backstory, so much backstory on both of these guys. Uh, and, I don't understand why. I, I did not enjoy this part. I don't feel like it added much to the story. Uh, yes, you get the motivations of why Ted wants to help because uh, he's been duped and he's mm -hmm. a good guy mm -hmm. and he wants to help out uh, and he doesn't like to see, you know, uh, Shimi and Dinky, you know, treated poorly. They're his friends uh, and he knows that he wants to live and that if he helps break the beams that all existence will come to an end. Uh, but we didn't need... Uh, how how I don't even know how many pages it was because I didn't read it this time, but it's a lot. What brought him there kind of was money in the beginning. They talked about like how much money they were willing to pay for this. And it kind of brings the idea of, you know, you're doing something morally wrong, right? Like we've talked about this with the national socialistic movement and such. When is it, when is it your job to realize and recognize this is morally wrong Money can't buy this work. We we can't do this, right? Like, when is that point when Ted realized? Because uh, you know what was his name? Dr Drampus, Trampus that that takes off the th the magneto helmet, the thinking cap, and he could read the mind. And he's like, 
oh, now I know what we're doing here. We got to shut this business down, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the book kind of answers that question itself because Ted even says, I, if it had been an exorbitant amount of money right off the bat, uh, because this is, he's what, in like the 70s or 60s or something, and they offered him $250,000, which is a, a, a uh, an asinine amount of money. He says in the story, if they'd offered me a million dollars, then I know I'm so I'm doing something wrong. But it was just enough to pique my interest. So I think this he, Kingdom himself does a good job. I just think that it was o over explained here. Um, but he he comes to the conclusion that he needs to help stop this. There are plenty of other people there that are just totally fine with it. And you know, there's people like that that'll look the other way when the money's looking good. And it's not just the money either. I mean, they're here in the Pleasantville area where, you know, they have food and technology and all kinds of other things that we shouldn't talk about on the video. And uh, the, yeah, I mean, their their life is great. And if they're going to have a great life right before the end and you're going to die anyway, why not is their attitude. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, also what's happening in the section is we have the man in black. Randall Flagg meets with Mordred. Oh, you you hated this, didn't you? <laughs> I did, but but it was a love hate relationship because fun. First of all, it's kind of funny because he's just like, yeah, dude, I showed I showed Roland pictures of the Dark Tower, stunned him right out, right? <laughs> That's how <laughs> yeah. we knocked him out. That's my explanation for what the heck was the ending of book one. <laughs> but then he like goes down, kneels his allegiance, and then gets eaten, right? Like like like. Whoosh. Like I'm having all these expectations of this big final showdown between the Crimson King and first you got to beat his first lieutenant, the Man in Black, and and then you got to beat his son, like the the uh, Mordred. Boy, that ain't what happened, right? Like like Randall Flag went down and went down fast, and it's kind of like that vampire of like you know stealing someone's thoughts and powers. But uh, the, was the reward there i i don't know but it does set up hey king ain't doing nothing that you expect in this book that's for sure <laughs> see this is one of the deaths that i was okay with because i think of like the lost boys and you know different it's funny you mentioned vampires is everybody has a different death and the one vampire you expect to have like this very explosive crazy death just dies very quietly and i feel like that that's flag is he's our main villain for so much of the story, and then he kind of goes out like a chump, and you don't expect it, but he's going out to Mordred, who is kind of the big bad of the story, who's looming behind, and he's kind of the mechanic driving, sort of, a little bit, the the engine of this story. I mean, obviously, Roland wants to get to the tower and everything, but he knows that his son is right there behind him, and he's going to have to deal with him at some point, and I, I kind of like that, he has a new adversary. The story's evolved past just chasing the man in black for now, because then we get to the end. <laughs> now, there are, okay, I can't name the show because I want to run it for anyone, but there's a really popular show out right now. And there's a, there's like, like literally like the most popular show. And there's, there's formula. There's, there's, there's a formula to it in terms of like, Introduce character, this happens, swan song says goodbye to everyone, character dies. Like, each season, this happens. Like, totally. they're going to kill him on the ninth episode. <laughs> Every time. Every right? time. Like, you know, you yep. know that formula, right? So, yeah. so, King's got a little bit of that, right? Like, there's certain villains that seem to be introduced in each book. And here we've got Pimley, 
who's clearly like the okay, we needed a villain. Let's call him Pimley. Let's call him Pimley. And they make oh, that's him a the little guy. bit. Yeah. He's the mayor. Of oh, Pleasant is that who Hill. you're talking about? The mayor? Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. he's um he's introduced and he's kind of, I would say, I don't want to say incompetent, but he's not like he's not attentive to details. Like like the warning signs go off and they're like, oh, just ignore it. It's fine. Like the end of the world, the one thing we're supposed to do, you know, with with this prophecy of the gunslinger coming, we're not going to worry about that. Like, obviously not an attention to details type of guy introduced for this novel for the sole purpose of having a named character be the one to do what, Mr. Crypto? To kill Eddie. Oh, poor, your poor guy. Right. We have we have this whole like this diversion to divert all the bad guys for the, the trap to be sprung. Roland shoots Pimley. Obviously enough not to take him out, but then there's the pop, 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 the, the shootout scene, and that's when Eddie takes it. He's, he goes down, right? Let me back up a little bit. They're going to town, and they're going to be creating this diversion, and they basically set these firebombs so that they distract all the guards and everybody, and they can get in and free everybody safely because they don't want to kill them. And during this battle... Susanna's on like this four-wheeler going around just popping people everywhere and you can see that in your head and it's so cool and Jake and uh and Eddie and and Roland are going around with their guns and the rises and just just taking out guards left and right and it it's it's the big scene right you know they're it's the reverse of the Magnificent 7 so like the good guys are going in and taking them out and it's worth pointing out we kind of skipped over this too the um the whole we are quartet scene, right? Like the ceremony of we're officially a family and family means togetherness and love. And you see them finally just, just executing to what they've been training for, for seven books. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Like they, they finally profess their love and realize how much they mean to each other and how much all these people mean to Roland. And they're just, they're all on point in this battle. And you think, okay, is everybody going to get out of here alive? And right when you think that everything's going to be okay, the battle's basically done, it then switches viewpoint to to Pimley, and he's like, I can still take out one of these guys. And, like, the dude's basically dead, but because his hatred is so strong, he's going to get to kill one of them. Yeah. And he, he got the uh, last stand, last stand uh, in, from Modern Warfare 2. Do you ever remember that? Like, yes. Like, you'd kill the person... And then they're like they're on their knees, and then they can like get their revenge shot. It was the most they, annoying thing ever. <laughs> yeah, they get he gets one shot left, and Eddie's turning around because he hears it, and he gets shot through the freaking head, and then he doesn't die, and he like the the poor Susanna's just like sitting there waiting for him to croak. Like, why don't they put him out of his misery because they think he's going to live or something. And Jake's trying to pray to Cy King to save him. And you know, Roland's just like, well, I got to get to my tower. And I'm like, this guy's like your brother and he's bleeding out on the street. And I'm just, I was so mad. Eddie was the best written character. He had the most growth besides maybe Susanna, but I don't know. He just, he's the first one we meet. And he had such a great relationship with with Roland, and I feel like that he went li- out like a chump, and it wasn't fair. <sighs> what are your thoughts on this? is This is not the first time this has been brought up, but it's it's kind of obvious that Eddie and Cuthbert, you know, like part of his den, his catet, they um the, the, to the den, um, they were kind of twinsies, 
You know what I mean? Like there's obviously been a lot of parallels and we've talked about that in previous conversations. We're not the first ones to point out that the way Cuthbert died was there was an arrow shot through his eye, right? And the same way that Eddie dies is the bullet through his brain. What is this about this kind of shared experience? Ka is a wheel, right? And the way that one person's fate seems to kind of impact the others. Like there's little elements of this cyclical cause a wheel thing throughout the whole story that that you don't see on your first read through. You know what I mean? And it, it's things like this now kind of knowing how it ends. I, I, I imagine these stories have just been littered with these moments that you've had to keep your mouth shut on <laughs> to not spoil it for me that that this these these entire books have been riddled with because I do remember them like even in Wizard and Glass walking into a town and they're like we've done this before like I know like I I don't know how I know this but I just know it I know this is what I need to do it's because there's this cyclical nature of them having to do things over what's that say about this shared experience with these characters a lot there to break down uh so real quick I think that the book again answers kind of that question itself in that king had these experiences in his life that were, you know, the precipice of one way or the other. The, he, he was on a knife's edge, and one choice would lead one way in his life, and another choice would lead another, uh, giving up his drinking and drugs, uh, getting married to his wife, surviving his car crash. These are very big moments in his life, and I think that in the book it kind of explains this, and some in the codex and some in interviews and stuff, is that he did not do this alone. He had his family and friends and people around him that influenced him in his writing, has edited for him, helped him, uh, you know, saved his life literally. And I think that without those people, he wouldn't be the writer he is. And I think that he's trying—he not trying—he does very uh, clearly, and I think very well, say that Roland would not be the. I hate to call him a hero, but he's the hero-ish of our tale without, you know, Cuthbert and Susanna and Eddie and Jake and Jake 2.0 and even his parents and even even Flag. You know, uh, sometimes the villain is something that is a negative motivator that makes Roland who is he is. Uh, Roland would have died. He's like, what? Roland's like 1,100 years old. I mean, he's obviously uh, immortal because he keeps living this over and over again, but... As far as we're concerned, he's lived 1,100 years in every cycle. Uh, and I, so I think that King is pointing this out, that these people are going to have influences on your your life. What's crazy to think about this is Ka has been a thing in this universe, like the, the Dark Tower universe, since its inception. He started this series when he was 19, short stories. When I was 19, like, like literally I've lived now double that time, over double that time. I'm an old <laughs> man over here. I'm, I'm now, uh, what was that guy's name? Zoltan with the crow in the desert. Like, oh, if God wills it, here's your water. <laughs> <laughs> like, like there's something to be said about how this whole journey was started when he was just starting his life just starting with his typewriter, just deciding he's going to be a reader, uh, a writer, no idea where it's going to go. And to still have this feeling about this interconnectivity, uh, I, I, I am really impressed because while the story's grown, while Stephen King has grown and probably better shaped it, there's always been this primordial essence 
of this interconnectedness, if I could say that word. <laughs> and that's just what's so impressive to me about this book series is, is while he didn't plan it, the, the guts, the central ka of the story was there all along. It's very obviously that he didn't plan it, being that he wrote Gunslinger so long ago, and then it was many, many years later when he, you know, picked it back up again, and then he almost died, and, you know, people are like, we're never going to get to the tower, because he's never going to finish it, and he literally writes that in the story, and I think that's why this is arguably the best book of the story, is he kind of explains all that, if you, you, if you nitpick a little bit apart, he's saying to you, like, hey, I didn't know where the hell I was going with this story, like, cut me a break, I'm sorry, like, I'm not perfect, uh, he's a great writer, but he's not a perfect writer. No, per no writer is, but he's trying to explain in the story why he made the choices that he did and that, uh, the, you know, the, the, uh, what's the word when you get inspired? The muse, the muse for the dark tower left him for a while. He couldn't hear the song. He couldn't find the words anymore. And so he wrote other stuff and he's trying to explain to Roland, like, I'm sorry. And Roland's like, you were just afraid. You, you, you were a coward. And I think King is kind of telling us that he was because he didn't want to disappoint us as fans. He didn't know where to go with it because he wasn't mature enough to write it. He had started this at such a young age and didn't know that it was going to be one of the best selling series of all time and define his career, define his life. Like when people look back on Stephen King's legacy, it will be, yes, he wrote a thousand books and he's the master of horror, but it's the dark tower that defined his career. And he wanted to have his swung song, his songs, blah, blah, blah. He, he wanted to have his magnum opus, you know, as the final book. And uh, I, I think he did that in, in being patient. And we are better off as readers for allowing him to be patient. Yeah, yeah. So for now, the characters have to say goodbye to Eddie Dean. Ugh. Right. And but temporarily, until I reread it. <laughs> you know, until the drawing until you reread it. Well, here, here's the thing: is is it was like Callahan set the tone for this novel. You know what I mean? And there's been foreshadowing throughout this, right? Like it was all the way several books back that they talked about. You know, a bumbler being impaled on a stick. Uh, Cuthbert being impaled through the eye through uh, with a with an arrow. There's all these foreshadowing elements, and, and King just outright spoils his book of just you're not gonna like this ending. And hey, uh, this character, one of these two characters, isn't going to make it. Like there's all these things that that he can just do and just get away with. I, I just I think it's rather remarkable what he pulls off with this series, because here's another thing: we're reeling. Like, like eyes just crying <gasps> from Eddie passing away. Right now Indeed. we head back to, is it, um, was, was this the keystone? This, yeah. Cause this is Stephen King. This is the keystone year, keystone world, right? Like that's where Stephen King is. Right. Do I have that right? 19. Yeah. Yeah. 1999. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. So, so we head back. There's only one here. Stephen King. There's only one. There can only be one. Yeah. There was just one way as, as Dr. Strange would say. <laughs> And we meet Irene, um, was it Tannenbaum, Tassenbaum, which one was it? Tassenbaum, Tannenbaum, yeah, something like that. Yeah, we, we, meet, we meet her at the general store, and I I love her. I really do. Just this, this, this bored housewife is just like, she's yeah, raw, let's, right? let's she's, save she's, the universe. Just, <laughs> yeah, she's just so like, yep, we're going to do that. Yeah, she's a great character. For somebody that's in the story for a limited time, she's just genuine, and you like her immediately. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and you said something earlier about Stephen King being very honest with himself. And I think you, you nailed, you nailed it on the head there with a lot of what you've said so far. 
Um, but I would add, add on top of that, he's self-deprecating too. Oh, it's for easy sure. to think like, it's easy. Like you put yourself in a novel, you think you're going to be God and can control everything. And he's just like, yeah, I hope the inspiration hits me. <laughs> like, like he, he's very humble. I feel like with how he approaches himself. And I honestly believe that on, on, on certain levels, you know what I mean? Like he knows he's Stephen King, but he also knows that Stephen King is a person, if that makes sense. Yes. That's why I love also how he writes himself in this book, because he points out the fact that he doesn't know how to end a novel. He doesn't know how to end a book. Uh, and they threw that in, I think, in the movie or an it or something like that, uh, where he's like, yeah, it's a Stephen King one. So, you know, it's going to be a terrible ending. He <laughs> is all about the journey. Right. And I think that's why the ending is slick, cyclical and it cycles back is because he didn't want this to end just like nobody really wanted it to end. We wanted mm -hmm. to know what happened when Roland got to the tower. But did you mm -hmm. really want his journey to end? It was so fun. There was so much to it. You have all these characters that you fall in love with for the last 20 some years reading this, I, I personally didn't want it to end. And I don't think King did either because he didn't know a good ending and that's okay for an author to admit. And I think that, you know, that says a lot about him as a person knowing that he doesn't have all the answers, even for his own story. Did you ever see that movie, the uh, edge of tomorrow with Tom Cruise? It's based on a, like a Japanese manga. Oh yes. That movie is amazing. Do, do you ever think much about that in the context of this series? Because you talk about cyclical, you talk about it never ending, but does this journey end? It's a good question. Well, we gotta talk about let, that. Let's get, let, we'll get there in a yeah. second. Okay, we'll get there in a second. All right, we gotta talk about Miss <laughs> okay. Tassenbaum, right? Or Tannenbaum. We can't. Yeah, we yeah, can't yeah, forget yeah. about let's go her. Right? Let's go save Stephen King and kill another character. <laughs> okay, so there's this whole plot. I don't know how much detail you want me to go to in here, but they they go to the 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 plaza where we meet Nancy Deepno. You know, we see the sign that can morph into whatever the reader thinks it is, which is very symbolic of us seeing things that may or may not whoa, be there. Doesn't. <laughs> whoa, whoa, you, you, you skipped killing Jake a second time. Oh, yeah, yeah, that that guy gets taken out, right? So, so she, they kidnap Tossenbaum, <laughs> and they go find Stephen King, who is on a walk, because he can't write, because he's not inspired. Well, yeah, and he, he has gets, to be inspired by his own characters in his fictional novel, in his real life. Super confusing. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. And so uh, he's about to get hit by a van. Jake ste basically steps in front of him. Stephen King still gets hit and hurt. Little cool side note. Roland gets fixed. All his arthritis, all his problems are gone. They get transferred to King because now he has the broken leg. And that's also symbolic. Remember when uh, Jake was having all the pains mm -hmm. and because he, he was having like the two lives Sting, mm -hmm. Stephen King is Roland and Roland is Stephen King. So now all of his arthritis and pains, his broken leg are transferred over. Jake dies. He buries him. Uh, Oi mourns and Roland thinks that Oi is going to just die with Jake. But Jake gave him a little message and basically told him how he's going to have to save because uh, Jake's sort of a precog as well. Um, and then Roland and Tausenbaum head to the city and. Uh, meet with the founders of the corporation that they made them start to save the Rose. So this, the cyclical nature, like, like we were just talking about, clearly there's influence in this story that it doesn't always have to be the same. Like this implies to me the the pain transference, uh, you know, it's kind of like the back to the future plot. You know, if I don't, you know, have this guy hook up with this girl, I may never be born sort of thing. Right. Here we see that there is possible influence 
into future generations, a karmatic influence. I, I, I don't know how to describe it, but is it a wheel or is it something that's repeated until you find the right solution? Ah, <laughs> yes, yes. We're going to get there. We're getting there. So he, he gets to the corporation and, uh, he meets, you know, the the niece and he meets all the people and they give him a watch and uh, they basically, you know, hey, we're going to take care of the rose. We're doing what you said. And he goes on his way. I don't know if we need to go much more than detail about that, but. Well, there's um, they're, 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 they find out they find out when Eddie when Eddie died, there's like the secret, right? Like he told he told Oi, who told Susanna, who told N- Nancy. I, I don't remember the exact line, but there's like, you know, the Eddie's final di- dying words. Uh, we discover when we come out where the warning Dandelo. <laughs> oh, Dandelo. Yeah. Dan, Dan, Dan Leo. Yeah. 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 Which I didn't get. Uh, and I don't, I, I had a problem with that later in the story, but we can get there in a second. I'm not sure how much I got either. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm, maybe it's, maybe I'm just over complicating it, but, um, we, we, we know the warning is Dandelo and they're going to head into kind of like this second to last penultimate chapter where they need to get the last thing to take down the Crimson King. A new hero. <laughs> well, for, first we have to go through the side quest of like the worm, the three lookalikes. Uh, Who all looked like Stephen was, King, which oh, that was funny. <laughs> yeah, like like all the different rep- Well, and it's kind of like how many masks do I have, right? Like the id, the ego, the super ego type of thing. Like, like who is the real Stephen King? We have all these different masks that we wear. Like that's kind of how I took that. Um, there's probably a lot of different ways, but... I think the more interesting part of this part four is Odds Lane. We got to get there, right? Yeah. What? Real quick, what did you think about the the cold? Like, he just so often, and again, just because it's fresh in my mind, he kept talking about, and it's just because, is he sitting in Maine where it's super cold in the winter? <laughs> and he's like, he has on wool socks, and he has on thermal underwear and a sweater, and he's got a fire going, and he's drinking hot chocolate, and he's still cold. Because he just, it was like cold it's so cold it's bitter cold i want a sweater when i give her a sweater it's so cold cold will eat you alive it's eating my bones it's so cold i'm just like i bet if you google how many times it says cold in just that section it's more than any other book ever in the history of ever of how many times it says the word cold like i don't know what he was trying to hit home with how cold it is but it's very cold (laughs) all right um here's my take on it i my one of my good friends his grandparents own a house on the ocean in maine and they're like, oh, yeah, we're out here nine months a year. And I was like, oh, like, which which nine months? And they gave me this look. They're like, well, we come out in the spring. We leave in the fall. I'm like, oh, okay, so you don't want to spend winter here. And they just gave me this look. They're like, nobody spends winter here. <laughs> I guess, like, on average, there's, like, $10,000 of damage yearly to these houses out here in this air in this particular area of Maine because of, like, the winds and the snow. And it's just, like almost unlivable to stay there that maybe maybe he is writing a little bit of that main experience into the book yeah well when i went to bangor and saw his house it was when uh, it was summertime it was not winter it was not cold it was extremely hot i was sweating so <laughs> let's get to odds lane uh where we meet the older man joe collins okay not to be confused with john collins just saying and he performs basically <laughs> this this comedy routine and the cadet like they're digging it like they're super into it. And uh, I don't know how you felt, but I'm reading it. I'm just kind of like, this is, this is off. Like, 
I, I couldn't tell you what it was, but the, the way Stephen King wrote, like wrote this, he made me feel like these are funny jokes, but something ain't right. Like, I don't know how he did it, but, but there's something about this, this feeling you have as a reader of just like, we got to go, we got to go. This, this isn't working. Something's wrong. Oh, it, I thought it was very obvious, not just because I've read it before, but I remember reading this the first time going, whoa, 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 something's wrong here. Uh, Joe Collins is the first nice character I've ever mm-hmm. read in a Stephen King book. None of his characters are ever nice, right? I mean, they yeah, always have point. realism to them. Joe Collins is a genuinely nice person, and that doesn't exist in the King universe. So I knew something was off right then, that he had to be a bad guy. <laughs> and it doesn't help that he lives on Odds Lane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then so eventually they, uh, Susanna uh, gets sick, or I don't remember exactly what it was, but she goes to the bathroom and her sore pops. Uh, like, remember how she's got like that oh, cancer? But, we kind of we haven't mentioned that, but her cancer sore has been growing. Yeah, that's right. Her cancer has been growing on her lip and he's making her laugh so loud. She smacks herself in the face on accident and it explodes in a rush of pain. She goes to the bathroom and she finds the hidden note from Eddie on the mirror, um, which is probably a note that she wrote to herself. Or think of this. What if in a different time they go through the loop, Eddie makes it and she doesn't. And wait, Eddie wait, wait. wrote on Eddie the mirror that time. I thought, I thought, um, like Stephen King, the author put it there. Oh, maybe. Okay. See, I thought, because okay, remember I, he says, if Eddie was, or she says, if Eddie was here, he would have figured it out immediately because he would have uh-huh. got the anagram for Odds Lame and Dandelo. And so I thought, oh, Eddie was here and he wrote it last time. And now Susanna's finding it. Was it, um, was it Song of Susanna where they were like, what was it? Was it at a hotel and Stephen King like change history by like leaving a note there with like the, the front desk or something like that. I think they talked about that. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's just pretend that that was the truth. I could be way off on that. <laughs> let's pretend that that had happened. <laughs> that book was like a year ago. So yeah, well, Fair. this goes back to how during the car scene, we saw things could change and remember when we said that even like in wizard and glass, they talked about the guns being ironwood, iron, ironwood versus sandalwood, right? Like there's small differences. Is it Stephen King mistakes or is this car changing based on the choices people make, right? Is this Stephen King, the writer changing history kind of like the back to the future thing gotta get my mom and dad to hook up (laughs) yeah yeah. he's at some point there had to be a first in which case there was no later note right in which case they just died there right so when they tried it again to the edge of tomorrow problem where i've got to do this puzzle better and each time they start to figure out how to do things better now remember and that's when they had all their memories here we just have feelings i don't know how that works out but as they're feel as they're feeling more and enjoying the journey more, they're getting to better solutions, and they're getting these solutions like from the future to help them move forward, right? Which implies that it's not just cyclical to me that there could be an end state possibly if they find the solution. Well, the solution here is Susanna sees the note and she's able to break the spell and go out and see that Roland's about to laugh himself to death. 
and ultimately they they kill Joe Collins uh, and realize that he's like an um, uh, a vampire that feeds on emotion uh, or laughter or fear or whatever. And uh, then they go and discover that the uh, the Patrick kid is in the basement and it kind of has been his cow. He's been eating him slowly for years. Um, and he's going to be the last important piece to the puzzle of Roland successfully getting into the tower. Well, and you find out he's got like those pencils, but all the erasers are snipped off too, right? Like you're like, oh, what's going on with this eraser business? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they point that out. You know, it's kind of foreshadowed that, hey, these erasers are going to be very, very important later on in the story. Yep. So we've got um, entering part five, Bill the Robot. Speeds them away on his little motor vehicle um, towards the. No, tower. no, it's but 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 Bill the robot. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, Bill's got a little stuttering, it, which yeah. uh, I don't know. It's kind of interesting to see Stephen King make him so human. I guess um, because like the stuttering would go away and come back, and uh, I think it was kind of based on how he was being more affectionate and caring about people, maybe than some people are in some Stephen King novels. Well, before sure. he started really <laughs> hating technology, right? Because we know later in current Stephen King stories, he really seems anti-technology. And here he is almost pro-technology, saying that this is a good thing that Bill is helping them. It he, and he like Bill is sad, right? Like when Patrick leaves, he's like genuinely feels bad that his friend is gone. Did you ever think about how Roland doesn't want to get to the tower? He's like, no, no, the time's not right. No, it's got to be sunset. No, let's let's go on a dance. Um, is he really looking he knows for the... when he's supposed to be there subconsciously? Well, well, he, 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 hear me out, hear me out, hear me out, hear me out. Okay. Okay. Is this because then now the narration tells you it's that's the reason. Or is there really something else where Roland doesn't want it to end? Right? Like, like the idea of the, I mean, come on journey before destination, bro. They talk about it. Is Roland stalling because he is in, Enjoying the journey, he's with his quartet. Well, some of the quartet, and they don't make it here. But he's enjoying the time <laughs> he has with his friends, in a sense. And he's stalling to prolong that. Like, is there a human element to the story that we've seen Roland grow? We've seen Roland stop being the Terminator and being more about caring for others, not being the guy to push Jake <laughs> down and instead try to lift Jake up in a sense. Like he's, he's grown as a character. I would say where he doesn't, he himself as a character doesn't want this growth and this camaraderie to end. I think. I think that's true. We see as Mordred is approaching and Susanna knows that she can't be there for the end battle. Again, mm-hmm. how does she know? She just knows and she's she's done it before it's cool yeah and and but roland is basically asking her to stay he's begging on his knees for her to stay and she's like don't 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 let that be my last thought of you of you begging on your knees you're you're my din you're you know basically kind of like my pseudo father big brother i want to have a better memory of you than this i gotta go and this is when we figure out that patrick what he draws can affect reality kind of that mm-hmm. now king is both patrick and king is roland um and so he draws her and he draws a beautiful picture of her and she has an idea of the eraser so he give she gives him the eraser and patrick erases her uh sore on her mouth and it goes away so then patrick draws her a door and she finally leaves roland so i i, I definitely see how you could think that he doesn't want this journey to end because now he lost Susanna as well. Wasn't there an element of will too? like he 
what does Susanna will or want? And what does Roland want? And what does it mean when what you want doesn't align with the Cotet's will, right? Like when, when everybody wants something, but you're the one that doesn't and who has the strength to actually walk away. And not only does she just walk away, she walks away into fictionality, right? This world is not real. It's made up. It's, it's just a fantasy, but is that enough, right? It's kind of, uh, I think you've said multiple times that the matrix is your favorite movie. She it is. chose red pill or blue pill, sir. <laughs> yeah. She, she chose the blue pill. She wants the fantasy because why does it matter if it's real or not? If it's an experience and she's enjoying it, that should be enough for her. The, the, the destination, she was the person that knew the destination didn't matter. The journey mattered all along. I think that she got what she wanted, though, right? She had Eddie and she had Jake and she had her life back and more. I think she kind of got what she wanted and that was that was fine with her. And that's sometimes that sometimes the illusion is OK for some people. Yeah, it's uh, what was the guy's name that screwed everybody over in the Matrix? Oh, he had the villain name, Cypher. <laughs> it's so <laughs> obvious, like he's the bad guy. Like that's such a villain name, but yeah, yeah. I mean, she she got plugged back in and she was happy. You hated him for that choice, right? Like you hated him, but but here, here's the difference. Well, well, here's the difference. His choice inflicted his will upon others because he could only get what he wanted, the fantasy world, if he sold out his friends. Susanna is fine with the fantasy world, but causes no harm to other people's will. And that's why we don't resent her. Well, okay, some people are probably mad at her for leaving the quartet, but we don't resent her for choosing fantasy. At least, okay, I'm sure there's some people that do, but not like as bad as we hate Cypher for it. But also you have to remember the quartet's broken. It doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, Once Eddie yeah. died, it was gone. And it even says that multiple times that the quartet was no more. It's just... Basically, her and Roland and sort of Oi, but Oi is devoid of life and emotion. He's just there to save Roland from Mordred at the very end. Um, so, yeah, once once she leaves, Roland has to stay awake all night by himself and Mordred is still stalking them. And he, he knows that he'll have an opportunity to attack and kill Roland, his dad. And uh, Roland does indeed fall asleep. And he tries to get <laughs> Patrick to watch, but Patrick falls asleep and, and then uh, Mordred attacks and Oi distracts him enough to where Roland, uh, you know, shoots and kills him. And he falls in the fire and he burns up and dies. And then uh, Oi dies a pretty horrible death as well, being like skewered in a tree. It's pretty awful. Um, but they they are now able to continue on to the tower with no Mordred at their backs. So it's just onward and upward. It's like Palpatine would have said, man, all is as I have foreseen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, with that said, so the content's broken. So does that mean they each have their own will? Right. Or or does does Susanna have a a duty to carry on in Eddie's, you know, why did Eddie die in vain? Right. Like, shouldn't she carry on for what Eddie believed in? There's a lot of interesting questions here, but none of them. I think involved Patrick Danville. <laughs> like, no, I don't know. Did you like him? He was kind of wet raggish to me. Maybe it's because, um, what, what was, what's the story that he came from? Like the, the connected universe that he's from. 
I think he's also from the Keystone world. I don't remember, but he's he's he has magic powers just like a lot of people do in many of King's stories, and his is that he can draw things and they become real, or he can erase things and they go away. And I think that you're not supposed no, I think, to. I think uh, I'm, I'm saying like I think him. he's from another book. Like I think like uh, Insomnia or something like that. Like he's one of the characters from there, and this is like the continuation of the story in the same way that Callahan and Ted Brodigan were. Uh, a continuations of the the connected universe as well. Like like Patrick Danville's from like another Stephen King novel. I think it's Insomnia. Yeah, but he. I I think that your question was, are you supposed to like him? And I I think the answer is no because he he does not fit the quartet. He's not a gunslinger. He's an artist, and Roland doesn't understand that. Roland is a gunslinger, and he's from a different time, reality, and understanding of of what it is to be. And art and artistry does not fit in Roland's world no, uh, and no, understanding of the world. <laughs> and, and so he's struggling that like, I have one companion left to help me get to the tower and beat the Crimson King. And like you said, it's this wet paper sack. And how is this ever going to be? And we get there, right? And they encounter the Crimson King. And ultimately it's Patrick that wins the day by erasing the Crimson King and what does that tell you? That the pen is mightier than the sword. <laughs> that the, the pen is mightier than the gun. And I think that's what King was trying to tell us is that, you know, his story is mightier than, that, that, that novels are more important. Stories about us as people are more important than, you know, the brutality that happens in our worlds. Do you think Roland had to, this whole story is kind of a tribute to an ego in a sense, like the idea that this, this tower, this, the tower junkie Roland is obsessed with this. It's kind of his story in a sense. And his story became the Kotet's goal. The fact that everyone's expecting this great showdown with the Crimson King and Roland, the main character, like what, what story doesn't end with a big showdown? Well, the dark tower <laughs> oh it was kind of a showdown right i mean he's throwing the sneeches out and roland's shooting them and you could see that would be really cool and he's like patrick do something and patrick's like i don't know what to do and he's crying there and you know roland's trying to go to me like well maybe if he runs out of sneeches i can you know run to the tower the tower's also calling him at the same point of like come to me roland <laughs> and you know the crimson king is like taunting him as well and and Roland wants a big battle, but the Crimson King won't give it to him. And again, King subverts your expectations of not kind of giving you what you want. And it, it is this, you know, dainty artist guy that is going to win the day. And I, I don't know, I, I kind of liked it. I felt like the big battle scene would have been uh, too too much what it would have expected. Like you wouldn't have enjoyed it as much, I don't think. Okay, you started out disagreeing, but then you ended up agreeing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, I agree and disagree. I, I, I don't well, know. Let me let me finish the question. Which... Let me let me finish the question. So okay. So the fact that Roland doesn't do the big battle that that Patrick is the one that is kind of the the guy that plunges the sword into the dragon. Does okay. that mean he had to Roland had to put aside his ego? And realize that there's there's bigger things than him. There's bigger things than him accomplishing the goal. That the goal is more important. That that that's symbolic of him needing to push himself aside 
to allow bigger things rather than just what he wants. Yes, because if King is all of these different people, he's a little bit Patrick, he's a little bit Roland, he's a little bit Eddie, but he's mostly Roland, right? King is saying, I got to put aside my ego and finish this book, finish this story for the people, and I'm going to get them to the tower, and that's where I want it to end. If you want to go into the tower, I'll give it to you. You're not going to like it, but that's what you want. That's what you get, because I think he does really write this for us. Why did the rose cut literally to the tendon roll in, but didn't impact Patrick? I don't know. Because Roland wanted it and Patrick didn't. I mean, they kind of explain it in the story. I mean, almost as a plot device of if... Because they needed the rose to make the blood for the eyes so they could make the picture perfect of the Crimson King so that Patrick could erase it. And had Patrick grabbed the rose, it would have cut his tendons and he wouldn't have been able to draw anymore. So Roland had to do it. Uh, although it was really cool that like, you know, basically it cuts off the rest of his fingers and it's just little pinky hanging. <laughs> like, I don't know. Uh, I guess it's also that he is finally sacrificing like the rest of his gun hand and that's what he is. He's a gunslinger mm-hmm. and he's giving that yeah. up for his goal. He will sacrifice, he sacrificed his pseudo son. He sacrificed his brother. He sacrificed his sister. He sacrificed his kind of dog, Oi, He's going to sacrifice his literal hands, which make him a gunslinger for his goal. That's Roland in a nutshell. Yeah, I think I think that's it for me is he had to put everything aside and even sacrifice his own way of winning to to make sure that the goal was accomplished. Like it didn't he kind of came to realize that it didn't have to be him to to win, to save the universe, I guess, and save save the multiverse. (laughs) in a sense the multiverse yeah yeah so so to me it was kind of like putting putting yourself aside for bigger forces almost yeah well so he gets to the tower and basically the book ends there roland's story ends there outside of the tower that he's gonna walk in and then it goes to Susanna, and she's with eddie who has uh, eddie and and uh jake are brothers and they have a different last name and uh She's with them and gets the hot chocolate that she'd been dreaming about when it was oh so cold so often. And uh, they kind of live happily ever after. And he just like, I know you and I love you. And I don't know why, but can we, you know, hang out? And uh, I think that's where King wanted the story to end. He knew people would be pissed. So he gives you the codex, right? And in the codex, Roland goes up to the top of the tower, sees his whole life replay out, which is kind of apropos, I guess. And then uh, when he gets to the top, what happens? Do the honors, sir. The man in black fled across the desert, and the gunslinger follows. Ooh! (laughs) And it all starts over, but you said that different choices will maybe make changes, right? What's different this time? About which part? From the original novel. The the Eddie part or the gunslinger part? You just flew through that so fast. (laughs) The the gunslinger part. He's got the, the horn now. He's got the horn, right? So, and he didn't have the horn before. 
right the the horn is it the horn of eld is that what it is like it came from like the yeah. bloodline and uh yep. w- what is it remind me I, again it's been four months is it if he if he sounds the horn at the tower the journey's over is that what it is yeah so when he gets there he puts the cross there uh he puts the, there's basically there's like three items that he needs to truly enter the tower um so he puts the cross down he puts his gun down, which is basically a piece of Excalibur, and then he needed the horn to sound to truly open the tower to make the journey and the cycle break. And I think each time he goes through, he's gotten a new piece. And now when he goes through one more time, and basically kind of your think if you read it again, knowing that he had the horn, the journey would actually end. And you're not mm-hmm. supposed to read the codex this time. So like Co- if you read it coda, all again, the coda, the, the coda, sorry, we're the codex. <laughs> You're not supposed to read the coda if you read it a second time through, because then the journey would end because he has the horn that time is kind of my mm-hmm. thought process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think there's been enough evidence that clearly. Remember the egg by Andy Weir? Oh, you had yes, the, so good. You, you had you died, you were reborn and every time you lived a life. You you learned a lesson in empathy, but you're not interacting with other people. That's actually you. You've just been reborn so many times, had to walk a, you know 500 miles in someone else's shoes. This is Roland going through this exercise of, of, of doing it over and over again. Does that give him more empathy? Do we see him grow or does it make him more jaded? Right? Like, like you, like you, any, any of these like time loop movies, first of all, you see a hundred different loops. Edge of Tomorrow, Groundhog Day, right? This is such an interesting take, not that it's the only one to do it, because there's plenty of other movies that we end over at the end, and you're like, okay, we're, we're starting over again, right? But but we went through a seven-book series that was just one loop. <laughs> yeah. Does, does, does the re-experience give you empathy, or does it give you a nihilistic view of nothing matters. Cause you see a lot of times like the characters just give up, like whatever, none of this matters. We're gonna have to redo it again anyways. Well, I guess there's a difference here is that Roland doesn't know he's redoing it where something like edge of tomorrow. He does know they don't know, but they feel it right. Like, I don't know how, but I feel it. Well, I mean, that's important though. I mean, in if Phil in groundhog day knows it, he just doesn't feel it. So he can literally make changes and difference. If Roland had stepped through the door at the top of the tower out onto the desert and knew all that had just happened, he wouldn't push Jake in. He he would say he would go back and save Jake in the tunnel in the first book. He he, he even says that. Uh, so I, I, I think that maybe he wouldn't become the person. Oh, not all the other gunslingers would become the person they come because he makes them who they are. He makes them better. He makes Eddie better. He makes Susanna better, et cetera. But he wouldn't necessarily grow anymore as a person. So I-, I think knowing is a big, big, important difference of this story compared to a lot of the loop stories is the people that get stuck in the loops. Um, they know it's going to happen over and over again. Do you ever feel trapped by a time loop? Like when we see Phil, in Groundhog Day. I don't know how you felt, but I felt exhausted sometimes. Like, okay, come on. Let's just figure out the solution already. But yeah. with the Dark Tower, it's so expansive. There's so much room and we see growth or not growth for some characters. 
that it just it doesn't feel as limited as some of the other time loop experiences i would say i think the universe is bigger and i think that while sometimes it was annoying that we got all of like callahan's backstory or pimley's backstory or patrick's backstory those characters are in other books and they have other stories and side stories and their own adventures and i think that's what makes this so grand is a lot of this is all interconnected um, you know, it is sort of interconnected and the shining and, uh, you know, the stand, uh, because we went through literally the world that gets killed by the stand in the dark tower. They were in that universe at one point in time. Mm-hmm. I think that's mm-hmm. what makes this so brilliant and why it was so tough for him to write and why it was, it was worth the wait. And, uh, why I, I think that reading this in chunks, you're going to enjoy it more than trying to sit down and read all seven of these books together and maybe, you know, look up online one of those you know uh suggested readings and read some of the other books you don't need to read all of them i don't think but reading it and reading insomnia and salem's lot will give you more perspective and let you enjoy it a little bit more this ending regardless of how you feel about it like in in the context of 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 a single loop of just like well now that rechanges everything i've just read and i gotta rethink everything like and, and maybe you don't like that or maybe you felt like that was like kind of like the obvious ending because he did tell you. I mean, I remember we talked about it in as early as Wastelands because remember they're going through that town and they're like, we've done this before. And I'm like, what the heck does that mean? Like there's a shared experience thing that's happening as early as Wastelands. And I'm sure it's in the first book. I'm just saying I noticed it. And that was the first time we talked about it was that one. There's something to be said about how this ending makes you reevaluate the entire series and probably makes the second run through much different than a lot of other books. Second run through like the second books, like you're looking for all these little clues, but there's a different meaning behind these clues and what, what it all connects to when you're like, is this the final loop? Like now he's got the horn, right? Like, <laughs> like there's something to be said about how the rereadability of this series is is through the roof i think it's probably one of the most rereadable series that that i've ever read at least and you're always going to pick up on new things and you're gonna you know oh yeah yeah this is going to come and that's what they're referencing here and uh i i think that's going to inspire you to read other stuff like i said uh maybe even read the wastelands poem that the whole thing is based on that you know he was able to extrapolate all of this and many of his books and ideas from which is just incredible uh, I think it just goes to show how of an amazing writer Stephen King truly is. One of the best and one of my favorites. Now, we cannot, we typically end the videos with something like, like, oh, um, check out this, you know, playlist from Stephen King down below. <laughs> but but we can't do that for this video. You know why? Because this is the beginning, not the end. Welcome to the Codex Cantina, where I am Una. And I am Crypto. <laughs> <laughs>